Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi, and welcome to New Books and Genocide Studies, part of the New Books Network of podcasts. My name is Kelly McFall from Newman University, and I'm the host of the show. And one of the things I teach at Newman is the history of genocide and mass violence. Uh, And my colleague wandered into my office several years ago, and we were chatting, and she picked up a syllabus, and she was scanning it, and she noticed a course requirement um, in which all of my students were required at least once a semester to present a moment of joy. And she asked me about it and I said, well, uh, it's short, it's three or four minutes and uh, they can uh, show a YouTube video of a baby laughing or show pictures of their pets or play a song that they love, whatever they wanna do. And she said, well, why is that in a college classroom? And I looked at her, I said, well, this is a course about genocide and the emotional challenges of studying genocide are make this class different than any other class I teach. And so I need my students to remember that, that there are moments of light in the world. And so I asked my students to share moments of joy. And that story is meant to remind me and us that teaching about genocide and the Holocaust and mass violence in many ways resembles teaching other subjects, but is distinctive and unusual and challenging. Um, And I'm really excited today to get some insight about how to do that. Uh, And today we're talking with Samuel Totten. Uh, Sam is a longtime genocide scholar. He's the author of a recent book called Teaching and Learning About Genocide and Crimes Against Humanity. And that book is a very practical how-to manual for people who teach mass, uh, the history and, and, and the subject of mass violence. Uh, and Sam's the perfect person to write the book. He's taught at both the high school and university level. He was one of the first wave of genocide studies researchers. Uh, and he's been on the show several times. Uh, and so I'm thrilled to get a chance to talk about the, the practical and intellectual challenges of teaching about genocide and, and crimes against humanity. So with that as an introduction, Sam, welcome back and thanks for joining us. Thank you very much. I'm very pleased to be back uh, and I look forward to our discussion today. And so, as I said, Sam, you've been here a number of times. And so rather than asking you to introduce yourself broadly, uh, maybe maybe you could tell us Uh, about how you started teaching uh, genocide studies and and what that experience of teaching it the first time was like and and, and what lessons you learned from that? That's a great question. That sends me uh, back a good number of years. And uh, I guess the first time was actually in uh, Tel Aviv, at Tel Aviv University. Mm -hmm. Uh, back in uh, approximately 19, uh, 1980. Hmm. And I was actually just a guest uh, in Israel Sharnis, a, a noted genocide scholar, 
uh, a guest in his course. And it was the first time that I had to bring together this mass of information and condense it in a way that made sense. Uh, and yet, at the same time, be cognizant of the fact that I had, and every teacher faces this, every professor faces this, a relatively small amount of time to mm. convey a lot of information. And yet, at the same time, uh, involve the students in the discussions as well. And that's what I've probably been primarily concerned with from the beginning. And that is to avoid being a talking head about this mm. Uh, subject, because my sense is, and it ties very well to your introduction, which I'm, uh, I'm impressed with, that is uh, your, uh, your unique approach, I think is absolutely critical to have ample discussion uh, throughout, ample time for students to ask questions, to make sure that they appreciate that they can answer, that they can ask a question at any point in time, uh, virtually about anything related to the uh, the study of this uh, this subject matter, but also to raise questions that they have personally about confronting it, possibly for the first time. And so, as I recall this event, it was just kind of this harried uh, attempt to bring this information together, to try to figure out what are the most salient issues and, and then how do I involve the students? Um, and what I've done from almost the outset of my teaching, and, and I think this is important for me at least, is to always raise uh, with myself as I'm designing the course, but also in the classroom with the students, I always posit the question, so what? Mm. And it sounds like it's uh, that I do it in a arbitrary manner, but I don't. What I mean is basically is what significance does this have for humanity? What significance does this have for individual human beings? What significance does this have for you as a student, for me as a professor, for us as human beings in a world where, unfortunately, sadly, uh, crimes against humanity and genocide are uh, perpetrated on a uh, astoundingly depressing and regular basis. That's it in a nutshell. And so a few years later, you've taken the opportunity to write a book that kind of distills all of these lessons and all of this thinking that you've accumulated. So, so why this book gets this time and particularly who do you want to read it? Well, prior to this book, as you as you may know or, or may not know, uh, I edited a book uh, back in 2004, I believe it was, uh, on teaching about genocide. And at that time, I brought together a lot that uh, I had uh, thought about, uh, put into practice, revised, and also, though, involved the work of a good number of uh, genocide scholars at the time to address uh, particular genocides. Uh, for example, uh, René Le Marchand uh, wrote about the uh, 1994 uh, Rwandan genocide. James Mace 
uh, a Ukraine scholar. I mean, he was from the U.S., but he was uh, specialized in Ukrainian history, wrote on the Ukraine famine. Michael Berenbaum, uh, noted scholar on the Holocaust, wrote about the Holocaust, so on and so forth. But uh, then uh, approximately 14 years passed. Uh, I had taught in a number of different settings, uh, uh, different universities uh, around the globe gave a lot of talks on genocide and also ended up retiring from the University of Arkansas. And I thought, really, this is the perfect time while I have the energy, um, while all of these ideas are still fresh, I should uh, write a book, update basically the book, but write the book on my own and uh, delineate in a good amount of detail uh, my best thinking uh, along the lines of both crimes against humanity and genocide. Uh, at one and the same time, I realized that I did have uh, uh, differences of opinion, uh, different approaches from others. And I thought, well, why not delineate these now? And uh, but also come as attempt to share what I considered be my best practice at that time. Um, my my uh, proposed uh, audience, certainly uh, teachers at the secondary level, who uh, have decided to, uh, to uh, attempt teaching about the uh, uh, genocide and actually teach entire semesters uh, about genocide now, which is rather remarkable uh, in light of where we've come from, but also professors of uh, education who are uh, helping their students tackle this, uh, this subject matter and virtually anybody really, who uh, is attempting to teach uh, genocide for the first time. Um, whether those individuals who have already taught about it would be interested in the book, that's a question I don't know, but certainly I would hope that there's something uh, available uh, that's worthwhile for them as well. So let's look at the book. And, and I want to start, you, you talk um, a lot about the importance of being intentional in thinking about why you're teaching about the subject and what it is about um, genocide and, and crimes against humanity you want to cover in this particular moment, week, lesson, semester, whatever. And you talk about rationale statements. And I saw the word rationale statements and I thought, huh, I'm sure that's important for teaching, but I never heard that, word, those, that phrase in graduate school. So maybe you could talk a little bit about rational statements and, and along with that, about why you think it's so important to think hard before you even start teaching. In light of the fact that, uh, that more educators, historians, politicians, people across the globe have focused on the issue of genocide, uh, just what do what do people need to know? Uh, why do they need to know it? And where do we even begin? I think from the outset, the one of my greatest concerns was this: is that when I spoke to uh, teachers about uh, teaching about genocide, 
what many initially focused on was the killing process. Mm. And it, the more I thought about that, the more disturbed I became because I, what the question is, well, why teach about the, uh, the killing process if you have not taught about the antecedents, uh, about how did this, how did this come about? Why did it come about? Uh, what were the uh, uh, socio-political issues, uh, economic issues, uh, uh, divisions within groups, uh, within uh, states? What caused it? What brought it about? Uh, what led people to treat others in this horrific manner? Just to teach about the, the killing is really, and I'm, I'm saying, I, is irresponsible pedagogically, I think. Let's put it that way. Uh, that's as blunt as I can be without being rude. Uh, and so, I, so my, my thinking was, if someone's going to teach about this history, they have to ask themselves why. Uh, what, what do they want to uh, teach about it and why? What do they want their students to learn and why? And is it valuable and is it going to lead someplace besides this uh, focus on these dastardly uh, actions? Um, in particular, you talk about the need to talk about the history of human rights and their violations in addition to genocide and ethnic cleansing. And I wonder, can, can you talk about why you think that's so important? Yeah, I sure do. And I do. Uh, I think it's extremely important. And I would add crimes against humanity as well, which which uh, includes some of those issues that you just mentioned. My sense is, well, it's not my sense. I mean, we all know that genocide does not uh, erupt from a vacuum, number one. Uh, there's something that precedes the, the actions of destroying or attempting to destroy in whole or in part a particular group of people. Uh, and the more I studied uh, different cases of genocide, the more I was impressed with the fact that years before a genocide was considered a genocide, that is a starting point, right? So we, we can take, uh, let's take Rwanda as an example. Mm -hmm. Uh, when people teach about the history, uh, when the history is written, when politicians talk about the event, they talk about uh, uh, 1994, April 1994, April 6, 1994. And they talk about a genocide that erupted and then spread, it basically erupted in Kigali and spread across the nation. And in 100 days, uh, between 500,000 and a million people were killed. But as I began to study that genocide, I was astounded to find that there were actually test massacres carried out back in the early 1990s. And uh, in addition to these test massacres, uh, there was this scathing propaganda uh, that uh, was uh, developed and spread uh, through, for example, something called uh, the Ten Hutu Commandments, 
uh, basically denigrating the Tutsi people and warning Hutus to watch out for these clever, devious individuals who have controlled us all these years and continue to want to control us and basically told Hutus, this is the way you need to act uh, in order to avoid uh, the continual, continued uh, uh oppression by these clever Tootsies. And as I began to look at the 1990s, uh, then I went back in time uh, and saw exactly, examined exactly how the Tootsies had treated the Hutus and why the Hutus in 1959 basically uh, uh, carried out a revolution against the Tootsies. And so what I saw was basically the Tutsis then being subjugated the way the Hutus had been, uh, being denied basic rights, uh, freedom, everything from freedom of expression, uh, freedom uh, to uh, attend school, uh, freedom to pursue jobs that they wanted. But over and above that, also they were uh, disallowed from living in certain areas. Uh, they were, uh, they were treated as less than, uh, meaning they were treated as others. Uh, and then of course in the 1990s with the advent of the uh, RPF coming up from Uganda and uh, going to war against uh, the Rwandan government, uh, then we saw all of these uh, human rights violations, everything from um, uh, basically uh, torture, killing, uh, and other types of deprivation. So I thought, look, it is so important to realize that there are antecedents to the killing and that, uh, and most important for me is that uh, these all constitute what uh, scholars often refer to as uh, genocide early warnings. My concern is, is that these crimes against humanity are being uh, 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 perpetrated. Sorry, the, these crimes against humanity are being perpetrated for years before the genocide. And oftentimes the crimes against humanity are as horrific as any genocide. And so that's why I thought it was important on a number of fronts. I mean, one, to, to try to ameliorate those so that that these uh, divisions amongst people did not result in genocide, uh, but also was early warnings to try to head them off early on before uh, the, uh, the eruption of violence took place. So we've talked about what to include, but you also talk about the idea of a null curriculum. So what is a null curriculum and why do you think it's important to think about that? Yes, uh, the null curriculum is basically very, very simply put, is uh, those ideas, uh, those uh, approaches, those uh, events, incidents uh, that are not addressed in the curriculum for whatever reason. And the reasons are many. Uh, one, uh, perhaps people didn't think about including such issues. Um, uh, maybe they weren't even aware of such issues, uh, or they uh, may take the approach that 
well, if they're high school, uh, the textbook constitutes the curriculum, and so we shall follow the textbook. Or at the university level, uh, of course, we know that uh, professors come in, they're expected to teach certain courses, and, uh, you know, the years move along, and uh, perhaps they, uh, you know, are fine with that, but, uh, but these other issues are not addressed either because people are overwhelmed, uh, there's not time and there's not space in the curriculum or whatever. Uh, so that's the null curriculum. And as a result of the null curriculum, a, a basically a curriculum that does not exist, uh, students then are denied, uh, denied insights, uh, denied information, uh, dis, uh, denied perspectives uh, about certain issues, uh, events that, that could be and often are extremely significant uh, for humanity and for, the, uh, for basically uh, life on this globe at this particular time. The first several chapters are, of the book are, are content-oriented and are, are, I think, designed to help people new to the subject get up to speed. Uh, and and they're, they're tremendous, but they're probably, um, for anybody listening to the podcast, familiar material. So I'd like to take a step back and ask how, if as a teacher of, of this kind of difficult subject, how do, you, how do you need to think about the strategies you use in, 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 in regards to the emotionally difficult kind of sources and topics and issues that students will be talking about and listening to and reading? How, how do you best recognize the emotional needs of the students um, and, 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 and as you teach this subject? I basically, personally, I basically do it on two levels. One, as I mentioned earlier, uh, a lot of class discussion, a lot of class discussion, and not only on the specifics of the information, but on what these uh, issues, uh, these events uh, bring up in the student as they read the material, as they think about the material, uh, as they prepare uh, for class discussion or, or quizzes or exams, whatever. Uh, so, and that often does come up, but it comes up naturally, I find. If you have an open classroom, and what I like to do personally in, in my classroom is I do not like to stay up at the front of the room. I, I don't like... Uh, trying to uh, conduct the, the discussion from that uh, particular vantage point, what I like to do is I like to put the class in a circle. And it doesn't matter if it's 10 students or uh, 25 or 30, so that we're all in uh, this together. Uh, and anybody can speak at any point in time. That, I mean, the only rule is don't speak over others. And then, of course, don't put down others as well. Um, to be open to uh, discussion. But at any point, uh, students are uh, welcome, and they know this, to address concerns that they have emotionally, um, that uh, whether 
if something was extremely difficult to read or think about, or students got to the point where they couldn't uh, continue reading about it. I mean, that's often the case when I use uh, one of the books that I've added to Centuries of Genocide. It, it includes first-person accounts for every single genocide. And it is, uh, some, some of the information is very, very tough to read. So, so there's that. The other thing is I always have my students write uh, about what we're studying, uh, what's working for them, what's not working for them, uh, about what we're reading, uh, about the class load, which is often heavy, uh, and about the material that's often difficult. I do the same in regard to films that we uh, watch. Uh, and I do the same in regard to uh, guest lectures that we bring in. And I should also note, I suppose, I guess this is a third point. Every time I teach uh, a course of genocide, I try to bring in guest, guest speakers. Uh, and they've been pretty eclectic in their knowledge base over the years. Everything from uh, uh, the... Uh, grandchildren of survivors of the Armenian genocide, uh, survivors of the Holocaust, children of the survivors of the Holocaust. Um, I did teach a course, uh, probably one of the more remarkable courses that I taught uh, in Kigali, Rwanda, uh, for, for the uh, course of study. I designed a master's degree in genocide studies for uh, the National University of Rwanda. Mm -hmm. And so, of course, we had uh, survivors of the genocide uh, there as well. Uh, but I've had Cambodians in who have survived, the children of Cambodians who survived. And again, uh, what I ask the speakers to do is to engage the students uh, in discussion. I mean, obviously, they'll tell their own story, but to leave ample time for questions or to allow for questions throughout. The other thing is, and now that I, 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 I'm sorry, I keep adding to this, but the other thing that uh, I do from the very first day is I let students know that, look, I'm here for you. This is your course. I know this material. Uh, this is not for my edification, that's for sure. And in light of that, I want everybody to know that they have every right, and I welcome this, questions throughout. So whether it's a lecture, whether it's a guest speaker, and I let speak, a guest speaker know this, that they should ask their questions anytime they wish. Because one of the things that I found frustrating as a, a university student was I'd, I'd have a question, but I'd have to wait. Then I'd have two questions. Then I'd have three. Then I had four. And then I started forgetting some. So I want the students really to, to posit those questions uh, that they feel are urgent to ask that are important to them. And in a lot of ways, in a, uh, the uh, emotional questions uh, will come to the fore mm -hmm. and, and then lead other students to also then uh, have uh, the, the gumption, if not the courage to ask similar questions. Mm -hmm. And let me flip the question around, because one of the things I tell my students is that every time I teach a course on the Holocaust or genocide, I have nightmares. So how, what, what advice do you have teachers uh, who may not be professionals in the subject 
about how to prepare themselves and, and, and wrestle with the difficulty of the material. Yeah, that's a little bit more uh, uh, difficult for me because uh, I don't experience that personally. Mm. So, so to address it is a little bit difficult uh, because I probably have less of an idea of what people go through. Yeah. Uh, but I, I would say that what teachers need to do is uh, they need to uh, well, here I am again. Uh, I think I need to be honest and say, hell, I don't know. <laughs> yeah, fair enough. So, okay. So that's an excellent question. And to be honest, I've not actually spent a lot of time considering that, uh, probably because I don't experience that difficulty. And also maybe I'm of the mind uh, incorrectly that if a teacher decides to tackle this, and it's often a teacher who decides to tackle it, uh, in, unless it's mandated in a uh, state uh, curriculum or school district, that uh, they're taking this on their own uh, initiative and have a sense of what they need to do to proceed. But now that you bring this up, I have to say, it's an issue that I'm going to have to think about. Mm -hmm. Um, you point out the dangers of denial and misinformation, uh, and 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 one of the chapters. I, I should preface this by saying you have a chapter on misperceptions about things that people often believe about the Holocaust and genocide that turn out not to be true, and then you have a chapter specifically about denial. And I wonder if you could say something about to teachers about how how to address in a classroom the fact that there are so many sites online that intentionally or accidentally provide information that is, that is false. Yeah, I think this is particularly germane vis-a-vis uh, -vis this period that we're living through mm -hmm. with uh, false news and fake mm -hmm. news and all of that. Uh, what is true, uh, what is not true. Uh, but I, I do address this at the beginning of the semester. And initially I address it because I know that students will be doing research. They'll be going online mm -hmm. and they'll be uh, coming across, they'll end up coming across some of these sites that look very professional, sound very professional, sound scholarly sound uh, as if they're on the up and up, and yet they're specifically denying whether it's the Armenian genocide, the Ukrainian uh, 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 mass hunger and genocide uh, perpetrated by the Soviet Union or, or the Holocaust or Rwanda. And so I want to make them aware of the fact that they need to be very careful where they seek their information. Uh, and I suggest different ways that uh, they might do that. Uh, I don't spend a lot of time on denial. I have to say that because even with a semester, I find that uh, uh, trying to address uh, what I think is, is uh, imperative to learn uh, simply takes up uh, a majority of, of the classroom time. But 
I think it is important to uh, introduce the students to the fact over and above that, uh, that these sites exist to the fact that there are deniers and why are there deniers and what are the ramifications of that? Uh, so we do look at uh, denial in regard to particularly the Armenian genocide because it's so prevalent still, uh, and the Holocaust because it's so prevalent and uh, the Rwandan genocide, which is prevalent, and uh, today uh, the uh, genocide of uh, that that took place in uh, Srebrenica in 1995. Uh, and the, you know, what are the ramifications? I, I probably would jump right now to uh, uh, Srebrenica. There are so many deniers out there right now that is having is continuing to have an impact on uh, the socio-political situation uh, in uh, in Bosnia, in Serbia, in Kosovo, and what we're seeing is that these deniers now are. Uh, uh, being elected in in different to different positions, let's say in Kosovo, uh, and the divisiveness is coming back. And uh, there are scholars, amongst others, who are who are uh, fearful that we may see uh, a uh, a repeat of the uh, tragic. Uh, killing uh, that took place in the 1990s in the former Yugoslavia. So, I mean, that's, that is huge. Uh, as far as uh, the Armenian genocide, the Turks are very active still in denying, uh, that is the Turkish government, and uh, denying the Armenian genocide. And not only that, they actually have uh, individuals on Capitol Hill that are, are paid to uh, approach different members of Congress uh, to push their particular view. And one of their particular points of view is that no nation uh, anywhere in the world should acknowledge uh, what the Armenians want them to acknowledge, and that is that a genocide had been perpetrated. And I, I assume that there are many, many reasons for that. Uh, I mean, one is uh, probably the hate still directed at the Armenians, but I also think that it impacts the uh, school curricula or could in, in Turkey and elsewhere. And uh, there is also the whole issue of uh, uh, reparations as well, which haven't been discussed in, in a lot of detail, but, but they are under study both, I know in the United States, Armenia and elsewhere. And the Turks uh, obviously uh, look askance at that. Yeah, a, a question along those lines or maybe building on that. Um, and I know you, 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 you haven't, you retired, but I'm sure you have some thoughts on this. This, this is, seems to be a particularly difficult time to talk about the roots of genocide and human rights violations um, because questions of identity and of um, polarization are so politically charged now. And so I wonder how, what advice can you give to teachers who are having to navigate teaching the subject in a classroom with people who interpret the present wildly differently? 
is extremely difficult. And and I, I can give an example, and it's it's not the uh, drastic example that that uh, that one might think I'm going to address. Uh, at Chapman University, uh, I was uh, um, a, a visiting chancellor scholar and I taught a course on genocide. And interestingly, uh, there were a number of Armenians in, in, the, in the course, a number of Jews in the course, uh, probably a majority Christians, but the Armenians had a very interesting take. That is the Armenian children or, or students in that course on the Armenian genocide. And uh, their sense of it was that any nation, number one, that, that didn't uh, recognize the genocide uh, was a denier, number one. Uh, Number two, uh, they basically asserted that uh, that through this denial, it was denying, and, and I understand this and appreciate this, and certainly uh, agree with this, denying the uh, travails that their ancestors, and in many cases, it was their grandparents or great-grandparents, mm -hmm. went through. Um, and what they lost, and uh, you know, the loss of their culture, uh, and loss of land and, and, you know, so much more, I mean, over and above the lives. Uh, what they didn't seem to understand is, is why was there this uh, controversy over uh, recognizing the uh, Arme Armenian genocide? I mean, one would think that should be easy to do 100 years later. Uh, but what they didn't seem to understand is that uh, there were still these political issues between Armenia, the country, and Turkey, the country, that have never been resolved. Uh, they also didn't seem to appreciate that when reparations are talked about, if you start looking at the land that, has, that had been taken or the property that had been taken, it would be a huge chunk of Turkey. And that then gets into uh, geopolitical issues that are very difficult to resolve. And how are they going to be resolved? Who is going to resolve them? And if we push it, going to result in uh, more violence. Uh, and if not, uh, you know, what exactly will bring about the resolution of this particular problem? So, that was an issue that kept coming up. And as I mentioned, I did have uh, Armenian, I had a, a Armenian priest uh, come in uh, and his, uh, his congregation was comprised of uh, many uh, Armenians whose families did lose uh, family members in the Armenian genocide and still have uh, relatives in Armenia and still talk about homes and land that had been taken from them. Uh, so that they wanted to solely focus on that. They wanted to focus on that to a large extent. And yet we had other issues to discuss, obviously. Um, but it wasn't something that could be minimized either because these students were taking this class to learn more about uh, their ancestors and what their ancestors went through and why this had not been resolved to this very day. 
so so that was that was difficult in that respect. Uh, can you ask that question? Can you bring us back though to the original question? Yeah. Uh, so that's no, and that's a, that's a really good anecdote to get it, get at that because that is a because. Um, I'm interested in, in the struggle, the difficulty of teaching about subjects that have contemporary relevance mm. and about how um, your judgments about what to say and what subjects to cover in a classroom can, can create conflicts in a classroom based on ethnic, but especially political identities now about uh, things, you know, evaluations of partisanship and um, ways in which some of um, the, the stages that lead to genocide, some people would identify them in contemporary culture. And how do you address that in the classroom? Yes, thank you. Uh, well, I, there's another example that I can give, and it was, it, it's very, it was very, very uncomfortable for me. Uh, I uh, was asked to speak at uh, the annual, one of the annual conferences uh, on, the, on the Rwandan genocide uh, in Kigali. Mm. And so there were uh, individuals from, scholars from all over the world. Uh, and we were actually sitting in this gigantic circle. There must've been 50 or 60 people there. Mm. And Again, this is an example that's going to be seem far afield, but it raises the issue because it was extremely difficult. Mm. Uh, as we were uh, talking, uh, discussing certain issues, the uh, issue was broached about uh, how the Tootsies should be inclusive in the way they went about um, uh welcoming the uh, Hutus and the Twa. Hmm. Uh, the Twa, of course, are, we would refer to them as um, pygmies, but their formal, uh, the formal term for their, uh, the people's Twa um, in soci society. And one of the issues that came up was how uh, the Rwandan government uh, under President Kagame uh, basically mandated that there are no more Tutsis, there are no more Hutus, there are no more Twas, we're all Rwandans. Mm -hmm. And everybody was talking about how uh, that was a uh, remarkable uh, decision and a remarkable effort. Well, I by that time, I had interviewed uh, scores of Rwandans, and I had bumped into a lot of Rwandans who, in fact, one of the first interviews that I did uh, when I was a Fulbright scholar at the National University, uh, the indiv individual told me point blank, I was born a Hutu, I was raised a Hutu, I'll always be a Hutu. And it was remarkable because people are fearful of saying things uh, that overtly in Rwandan society, and yet this individual did. And uh, so I, I tried to broach that and uh, I was kind of look askance at because they, meaning the many of the Rwandans, not all of them, felt, well, that issue has been resolved. Uh, let's not bring it up. I was bringing it up because my point was, well, you think you may think you've resolved it, but you haven't resolved it. And from there, I w we began to talk about uh, teaching uh, 
about the Rwandan genocide in in uh, Rwanda. And basically what was discussed is that uh, it was going to be from the perspective of the Tutsis. That's what the teachers were telling me. This is a perspective from from us. We're fair. We're the ones who suffered for all of these years. And uh, we're going to teach the uh, genocide. And I, so I, I raised the issue, well, how are you going to discuss what the Hutus lived through all the way up to the Hutu revolution in 1959? They felt they were oppressed, uh, just as you felt you were oppressed from 59 through uh, 94. And if you don't bring that up, and it doesn't sound like you are going to bring that up, and they admitted they didn't plan to, what does that do for a good part of your society? They're basically being told their history doesn't matter. Mm. Their perspectives don't matter. And uh, long story short, one individual, a Rwandan woman who uh, lives now in Canada, started screaming at me Mm. and calling me a denier uh, by suggesting that these other issues need to come up. And I said that there was a, a their curriculum was problematic uh, as it currently stood. And uh, for me, that was pretty much, uh, you know, in a nutshell, the whole issue of uh, denying, not, not the genocide, of course, but denying uh, other people's history and basically uh, discounting who they are, who they were, and what they had gone through themselves, and why this Hutu Revolution '59 took place, and uh, and uh, ongoing concerns that uh, Hutus are considered, uh, whether the government wishes to recognize it or not, second second uh, class citizens. So that's not the classroom. I know you're. We're talking here about the classroom, but what I would say is. You have to uh, you have to be, I think, uh, very sensitive. Uh, I think you have to have the gumption to address the issues, but to do it in a sensitive manner, to let the students have their say. And yet you have to manage the situation uh, where you hopefully avoid uh, uh, individuals who become very heated and you also have to avoid a situation where other students then counter uh, in a way that uh, devolves into ad hominem arguments uh, is very, very difficult. It's, I would say that it's probably, for me, uh, the most strenuous and, and uh, emotionally uh, um, depleting aspect of of the uh of of teaching about genocide and you never know what's going to be raised yeah that's good advice um your chapter on bystanders and and who is a bystander at least at least as i read it seemed to me the most personal and maybe the most impassioned in the book what what did you want the readers to to think about and to recognize as they read that chapter i think you're right in your evaluation of it uh Yes, it is personal, and uh, I, I spend a lot of time thinking about it, and uh, that chapter is a, a chapter that's quite a bit different from the others. There's no doubt about it. My concern is this, is that for years and years, while, while I uh, both uh, taught about 
the Holocaust initially and uh, listen to uh, speakers speak about the Holocaust and uh, survivors uh, speak about it. What I, what I found disturbing is that uh, a lot of fingers, well, this is not true uh, necessarily of the survivors, but, uh, but students and, and teachers pointing their fingers at individuals who are not the target population, but living in the same society where a population is being targeted as other. And my sense is that uh, particularly when you begin to read about the day-to-day living conditions under a dictatorship, uh, to, to call on as, again, teachers, students, writers do oftentimes, to call on those individuals who are living in that society, witnessing the, uh, the denial of basic human rights and worse, to call on them to, to speak up and act, uh, I think is something that's extremely easy to do. Uh, is something that does not take into consideration the appreciation of what it means to live in a dictatorship. Uh, and by that, I mean the uh, ramifications of speaking out against a dictatorship is easier said than done when you're living in a democracy, uh, when you're living uh, thousands and thousands of miles away, and uh, when that uh, historical event has taken place uh, decades, if not uh, a century or more ago. Uh, I just don't think it's uh, wise to do that in the first place. I don't think it's fair to necessarily point your finger at those individuals, though when individuals can't, could, those individuals who could have spoke up, who could have done something, I'm all for uh, them doing so and believe they should have done so. But the average person, I think, living in a dictatorship is probably as fearful as anybody else. So, so I think it's kind of a, uh, it's a way not to uh, face the truth of the matter that those who are living outside that particular nation, uh, state, have a responsibility uh, not to be a bystander. And then I also believe that simply speaking out um, or writing a single letter or joining a single organization is far from enough when a genocide is taking place. I think personally that uh, if you're not going to be a bystander, then your actions should be sustained. That is, uh, if, it, if it's uh, 100 days, such as uh, the Rwanda genocide was, uh, or a short period of time, such as uh, the Srebrenica genocide, uh, when some 8,000 Muslim boys and men were slaughtered. Uh, if it's Darfur, uh, a case that killings are still going on to this day, not, not the, by the tens of thousands uh, that they were back in the early uh, 2000s. 
it has to be sustained and uh, it has to be well thought out and it can't just be emotional. It needs to be uh, uh, um, tactical. It needs to be well thought out. It needs to be, uh, it needs to try to reach certain points, uh, pressure points where you apply the pressure. Um, and it might be working in hand, hand in hand with people in Congress, so on and so forth. Uh, so my, my sense is, is that while just about everyone who's concerned about crimes against humanity and genocide uh, will look askance at bystanders, they don't necessarily see themselves as bystanders, or they'll think, well, I'm a member of this group, I'm doing this, and yet it's not sustained. And, uh, and I think if we really think about what's happening to those people, by God, there should, it should be a sustained effort. And so what I wanted to do in that chapter was, yeah, I took myself uh, as an example because obviously I know myself best and I've been very concerned about uh, uh, myself being a bystander. Um, and I have been in the past and I have been, I mean, the thing that I wrestle with today is I, I think there are probably uh, at least a dozen places where we should be focused. And yet, am I? No, I'm not. Uh, why? Well, I'm focused on this particular issue here and meaning genocide or crimes against humanity, but I don't have uh, the time or wherewithal to address all dozen of them, right? Um, but I think, yes, it's got to be sustained. Uh, one needs to keep in mind what is happening and, and then go about it in a, uh, you know, a uh, well-structured uh, way. Uh, and what I wanted to do was I, by using myself, I wanted to show how I went from what I perceive as fairly simple actions to more complex actions. And, and actually, uh, I plan to revise this book in the next year or two. And I've already uh, given considerable thought to how I'm going to uh, revise this chapter. And I have examples of individuals that I've actually come in contact with in Sudan during the war when I was uh, uh, transporting food up to uh, people who uh, were without. And I met individuals who had uh, created on their own some remarkable ways to uh, uh, ascertain what was happening to people and then to relay it to the wide, uh, the greater world and, and remarkable stories that most people do not know and uh, that had a remarkable impact. Uh, so, and I still think today, I mean, I, I, I tell you, for example, today, I mean, the, the, the one uh, case that really has me stymied and frustrated um, and, and I think about it every single day is uh, the Uyghurs in China, uh, because China has basically uh, shut down uh, travel to the particular region where the Uyghurs are being held in the hundreds of thousands uh, in, in um, re-education camps, which are virtually concentration camps where they're tortured, uh, uh, where, they're, where, they're, where they're held uh, without trials, um, where they're fed little, uh, where, they're, where they suffer uh, 
uh, uh, what is it, the uh, slave labor, uh, I'm wrestling with that because I feel very much today that I am a, uh, a bystander and it frustrates the holy hell out of me. Uh, but I think that people need to revise what they perceive as uh, bystanders. Um, I mean, that, that's it in a nutshell, really. I don't recommend that everybody do what I did. I mean, I, you know, I was going to very, very tough areas uh, to collect data. Um, I suffered ultimately health-wise, but I never suffered politically, though I could have, and I was never injured, uh, though there were daily bombings in, in the Nuba Mountains when I was up there. I mean, that's the extreme. I, I, I think there are uh, a lot that people can do this side of that, uh, whether it's right, uh, for example, a, um, a guest commentary one a week uh, to different newspapers. Or what I did as well is co-author it with individuals to get them in, to get their perspectives from uh, all over the United States and the world. I, I probably wrote about 40 of those, trying to model what I suggest should be practiced. So, um, so you mentioned you wrote a book about this almost 20 years ago, 15, 20 years ago. You've written another one recently. What is your sense on a broad level about how effectively we teach about mass violence in the current world? Is it, is it better than it used to be? Where could it be better? What's your kind of global evaluation after writing this? Well, it's definitely much, much better than it was. I, I mean, if you go back to, or if one goes back to say uh, 19, the 1980s, when I first became involved in genocide studies, uh, you could actually name the people uh, who, and it was a small number. Those, uh, you can name the people and name uh, those who taught about which genocide or genocides. Um, and that was true really up until uh, I'd say the early 1990s when we started seeing uh, different uh, organizations being founded uh, in different countries, uh, Israel, Canada, uh, United States, and elsewhere. And uh, those organizations, one of the first things that they did was focus on the issue of teaching it, because they felt this is, the, many people do not uh, know about certain genocides. I mean, we could name certain genocides that uh, probably today people haven't, uh, aren't aware of. Um, but in the, uh, in the 80s and 90s, I mean, it was remarkable how many people were not familiar with certain genocides, other than say maybe uh, the Holocaust certainly and the Armenian genocide and maybe the Cambodian genocide. Uh, so yes, it's, it's a... Uh, 180 degree turnaround. I mean, it's, it's incredible. I mean, to have lived through the 1980s and to have done some of the, you know, early work on um, uh, starting to prepare curricula and, uh, and courses on uh, genocide, it's, it's mind boggling where we're at today. Uh, and that's true of the collections in libraries as well. When I first came to the University of Arkansas in 1987, uh, and this is hard to believe, I went through their 
card catalog, <laughs> not, not online, and spoke to the librarians. And I found uh, exactly 12 books on genocide, if you can believe that. I mean, it's mind boggling. Now, if I look today uh, on the internet at the U of A uh, uh, library system, I mean, we're talking hundreds of, of books. So uh, yeah, it, there's been a world of difference. As far as the quality, uh, quite frankly, I'm pretty impressed with both uh, high school teachers and university professors. Mm -hmm. uh, nothing's ever perfect, of course, but uh, and I'll give you one example. Uh, I, I see more and more uh, high school teachers, and I, I think maybe professors did this, uh, whereas high school teachers didn't, mm -hmm. is to help their students understand what genocide is. Mm -hmm. Because I think back in the 80s and the 90s, maybe even early 2000s, it was enough for some teachers to say, well, let's... Uh, you know, let's ask, I'll ask my students, what is genocide? And they would call out uh, extermination, annihilation, and maybe, you know, four or five more words. Well, that's, that didn't, that doesn't explain what genocide is. Uh, so when, when teachers and professors started using um, the uh, UN Convention on the uh, Prevention and Punishment of Genocide, uh, and, and particularly looking at Article 2 and uh, looking at, you know, what is genocide? What is, what is genocide according to um, the UN uh, Convention? What is that definition? And so we find, you know, to destroy in whole or in part uh, as such. And then we look at specific uh, groups. Uh, and we then, of course, uh, scholars look at the groups that are not included. And then we look at what are what are examples of actions that constitute genocide. I mean, that alone. I've seen teachers and professors address and and that is really, I think, opening the minds of individuals uh, to speak specifically about what genocide is versus what crimes against humanity is, versus uh, ethnic cleansing, so on and so forth. And I, there are so many ways, as you can imagine, you probably know better than anybody, that, uh, that, that you can go about teaching genocide. And uh, personally, I think if a teacher decides to focus on a single genocide, fantastic. If they include the antecedents, uh, if, if they... Uh, uh, I think it's important to look at the geography. Uh, I think it's, you know, uh, obviously the politics, why particular group is, is being ostracized, uh, cast out, uh, demonized. And my sense is a lot of teachers who really care about this, uh, not, not those who are mandated necessarily, because I think when you get into mandates, then you end up probably uh, asking teachers, uh, that is principals asking teachers to teach it who don't really care. But I'm talking about those who really care, who take it upon themselves. Uh, I think they're doing a heck of a job. Um, yes, I do find uh, problems, uh, certain aspects problematic, but uh, I think as a teacher teaches this and then uh, reflects on how it went, uh, what worked, what didn't, uh, they'll probably uh, begin to 
revise accordingly and uh, seek out probably articles and books that will help them uh, do a better job next time. Uh, so I have to say, I mean, I, 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 I'm pretty astonished by, by, the, uh, by what's transpired over the past 30, 40 years. Yeah. Well, that seems a good point to end. So I always end with the same two questions. And so I wonder first if you'd uh, be willing to to suggest a book or a movie or a documentary or something. What, uh, what should the audience read, uh, whether to understand this topic more or just something that you found meaningful as you've explored the question of genocide and, and, and teaching? Yes, I, I have plenty of books that I'd like to recommend, but I'll try to keep it to one. Um, <laughs> And I hope this isn't too distasteful, but <laughs> I did publish a book recently uh, with the University of Toronto Press, uh, which I think is, is quite different from a lot of books that have been published. Uh, and I think it's uh, worth uh, taking a look at. And, and I'll say why. First, I'll give you the title. It's Dirty Hands and Vicious mm. Deeds. Mm -hmm. uh, the subtitle is The U.S. Government's Complicity in Crimes Against Humanity and Genocide. And did we talk about that? No. Oh, okay. Good, good. All right. Uh, because I was going to say, if we did, then uh, forget about it. <laughs> um, but I think what's important about this is that it examines uh, six cases mm -hmm. where the United States government actually was involved in supporting in one way or another the perpetrators and i think that when a lot of people think about genocide in the united states they go all the way back to the native americans mm -hmm. and uh and, and thank goodness we do have certain scholars today ben madley at ucla is a classic example who has been working very diligently on uh, specific cases where uh, indigenous uh, Native American people were targeted for genocide. And I think that's important to, uh, to teach the students. I, at the same time, though, I don't think many uh, students, and I'm not sure how many teachers, mm. are, um, are conversant with or cognizant of the fact that we take a uh, genocide-like Bangladesh, 1971, uh, where West Pakistan uh, attacked uh, East Pakistan at the time, which is now Bangladesh, where uh, President Richard Nixon and uh, his advisor at the time, Henry Kissinger, uh, were very involved uh, in supporting uh, the West Pakistanis or Pakistan, as they were known as, going in and committing the genocide in uh, in what is now considered Bangladesh. Uh, and we've seen other cases of that. Uh, we've seen it, well, a case that I've written about a lot, uh, it was the case in Guatemala where uh, the uh, President uh, Efrain uh, Rios Montt uh, basically had military go in the highlands, the Western highlands and commit genocide against, uh, the, uh, the people of the highlands. Um, and we had a lot of individuals here in this government at the time, uh, president Reagan, uh, and, uh, people that he had in his government who basically supported, 
uh, Rios Mont and uh, and his killing of the Maya people. Uh, and again, I mean, there are trials going on today. There was a trial just this week, actually, uh, in Guatemala, where uh, certain individuals who are who were being tried and found guilty for uh, mass rape of um, of girls and women uh, during that period, where where they uh, raped the Maya women. So, uh, I think it's I think. It's extremely important to understand that our hands, our government's hands, um, are not clean when it comes to the issue of genocide, and that it's happened over and over and over again, and it's something to watch very, very carefully because, it's again, it's easy, just as I said about bystanders, to point the finger to another group, and then we are, our, our taxes um our votes uh, people we put into government uh have supported uh, genocide in different ways and we've seen it also in argentina uh during the dirty war uh so it's to me it, it's it's something that we need to be converted with if we're saying say that we're interested in genocide if we're concerned with halting genocide well a good place is to be aware of what's happening in in our own nation now that's easier said than done in a lot of cases because a lot of this stuff is carried out in secret of course but i would encourage teachers and students and professors to go to uh to uh george washington university and look at uh the uh the repository there that it's collected uh declassified documents around Argentina, around Guatemala, around uh, Bangladesh and other cases, Serbanitsa, what our so-called leaders have said and have done uh, in certain cases. And it's, it's an awareness that is extremely valuable because I think it will raise questions in their minds and maybe, maybe prod them to start looking at what has our country done uh, in the way of supporting perpetrators. Well, I will add that one to my reading list. Um, that reading <laughs> list seems to be never ending, but that's okay. Um, and you actually are remarkably prolific as an author. Um, your own personal reading list, I don't know, is, 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 is a lengthy one. Are you working on anything now? Uh, I am, in fact. Uh, I'm uh, getting prepared. I've, I'm, I've been taking copious notes uh to revi to revise the book that we talked about today mm -hmm. um and uh i most recently finished it's coming out uh in about two and a half months uh the fifth edition of centuries mm -hmm. of genocide uh it's huge it's about 800 pages now <laughs> And I uh, added uh, four cases, the Argentinian. I added uh, the Rohingya in, uh, in uh, Myanmar, uh, Burma. I also added uh, the case of the Uyghurs in China. And finally, the Yazidis um, in, uh, in Northern uh, Iraq, uh, 
who suffered genocide at the hands of ISIS. So those four chapters are new. Um, and uh, every other chapter, with the exception of two, because uh, the authors died, mm -hmm. and uh, I still think they were fine chapters, every single other chapter has been revised, in some cases extensively. So that's what I'm working at right now. Well, that is a textbook I use regularly in my classes, so I'm uh, excited that there's a new edition coming out. and. Uh... And I don't, I have to imagine that you will continue to write on this as you go along. And I hope we'll have you as a guest again. Uh, we have been talking to Samuel Totten about his book, Teaching and Learning About Genocide and Crimes Against Humanity, Fundamental Issues in Pedagogical Approaches. Sam, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate you being on your show and uh, best of luck. Well, thank you, Kelly, and thank you for the phenomenal questions and the opportunity uh, to uh, discuss these issues with you once again. Thanks an awful lot.